morning, everybody. This is Eric Kapitulik, founder and CEO of the program. So excited for Fred Kaufman, the Vice President of Leadership Development of Google, to join us here this morning. Uh, just before I have Fred introduce himself and give you his background, let me share with you uh, something I was talking to my wife about last night, Fred, when you and I got done with our uh, pre-interview call. My uh, One of my best friends in the world, I served with him in the Marine Corps, Nate Braden. Nate Braden grew up in Colorado, put himself through the University of Colorado by going up to Alaska every summer, working the salmon fishing boats. Got done with his education at the University of Colorado and then decided, well, hey, I'm going to travel through Africa. No money. Just got there and was going to figure it out. He's got all kinds of stories about traveling through Africa and at the time, South Africa under the uh, apartheid regime. Mm. Came back from that and then decided he was going to enlist in the Marine Corps. Talks all about his, his enlistment, getting selected for officer training, gets out of officer training and then meets a professor in business school. He's fluent in Russian. They end up writing the real story behind The Hunt for Red October, the, the movie The Hunt for Red October. Yeah. Uh, he talks about going to Russia, interviewing some of the people on uh, the, I believe it was a destroyer. It may have been a frigate. I, I, I can't remember right now that the, that the original Hunt for Red October story was based on. So that's my buddy, Nate Braden. And for years, Fred, I would say that you're familiar with the most interesting man in the world, the Dos Equis ad. So for years, I would always refer to Nate Braden as the most interesting man in the world, as far as I'm concerned. He is now in second place to Fred Kaufman. Oh my so God. <laughs> Fred Kaufman is the most interesting man in the world. Now you've taken over the number one role in, in the Dos Equis ad for me. Uh, but Fred, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. Could you, because I will not do it justice, speaking of your birth and, and, and being raised in Argentina at a, at a uh, you know, horrible time in its history and bring us up to today and the audience up to today. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I'm afraid I won't be able to fulfill the expectations you've created now about my being so interesting. I'm, I'm trying to dig into my past to see, okay, what, what can I share that I won't be endlessly embarrassed afterwards, but uh, nothing comes up. All my interesting stuff is uh, a little embarrassing. But um, I was born in Argentina, uh, very happy childhood, very relaxed. And then uh, 1973 came and uh, a, I would say a, a democratic government took over, but it was a, a populist government that uh, created a lot of mayhem. And three years later, there was a very bloody coup. So I had uh, early life experience in being, um, I would say, the, uh, the recipient of a lot of darkness, a lot of uh, totalitarian abuse. Uh, being Jewish, uh, it was it was worse because there, it was mixed with anti-Semitism. It was a very scary time. Um, many times we had bodyguards at school because we were always under threat of attack by anti-Semitic groups. 
um, and and it was it was it was frightening, and it was also very um, very enraging because I felt again this was a, a, a replay of my studies of the World War II, and I've studied what happened to the Jewish people during World War II and how we were abused and how we were um, well killed in large numbers. And I was afraid that that would happen again. But the, the biggest lesson I got from this many years later is that I realized that while the thing, uh, this it's called dirty war was taking place in Argentina, nothing really happened to me. And a lot of people disappeared around me. So rather than identifying with the victim, I began to realize I had been like the Germans that I had despised before because I was there and I saw people being kidnapped and being taken in, in intelligence services vehicles, some green Ford Falcons that was the car that they used. And I didn't do anything. I mean, I was 15. I, I, I forgive myself for that. But, but still, I always wonder how could it be that good people like the Germans were were able to stand aside and see how the Jews were being taken to the camps and not do anything. And now I found out why. The fear, the shock, it leaves you frozen. And it's not the kind of fear that I imagine you would have in battle where, where there's a lot of action. This is a colder fear. It's just there. It's a, it's a creeping totalitarianism. It's a machine that seems invincible. Uh, something like 1984. So I I would say I've had the experience of being a victim, but also identifying myself with a bystander who didn't do anything when things were taking place. And it was so shocking because when it happened, I didn't realize that I was doing that. I felt like, well, what can I do? I, I mean, I'm innocent. Nobody can expect me to do anything. Uh, and I became a totalitarian supporter by default because my silence enabled it. And I don't know if I could have done something different. It was it was literally suicidal to open your mouth, and and quite a few people disappeared for opening their mouth only. But uh, that left me with a profound distaste for violence, aggressive violence, and also a profound respect for defensive violence. The need to to be to be willing to stand for what I believe, uh, not not in a ruthless or in an aggressive manner, but in a strong um, defensive manner, which is totally moral. And although I never did that physically, I endeavored my life to do that ideologically. So I went, I studied economics, trying to understand how social systems are able to to work or uh, how to create social systems that would be based on mutual voluntary cooperation for service, which is what I believe of capitalism. Uh, you studied went, at Berkeley, right, Fred? I, I studied first in Argentina, then I did mm -hmm. my PhD at Berkeley, mm -hmm. and then I taught at MIT, uh, I, at the Sloan School, mm -hmm. uh, business and economics and management information. And then I left uh, the university and started a consulting company that grew quite a bit, about 200 people, but um, I hated being being a manager. I, I wasn't so, I mean, I was okay, but it's not my thing, I'm a teacher. 
So I left and became. What was the consulting company's? Excellent. Uh, it was. It was about uh, leadership and and uh, culture, building top teams and creating a culture that would be effective for for the business world. But very, unbeknownst to me, many of the principles, as I learned working with you, are very similar for military teams than for business teams. And reading Stanley McChrystal's book about team of teams, I was shocked by how similar the problems are at the highest level of cultural integration. I had the opportunity to meet him in the lecture circuit two or three times. And we, mm-hmm. we, had, we had long discussions. And in a sense, I, it was exactly the same type of problems of bringing different people together and creating a, a coalition that would have a common purpose and a common set of principles. So I've been doing that. I did that at LinkedIn. Uh, I was uh, like an assistant to the CEO and the top team for five years. And then Google came. And now I'm doing it at Google. Yeah. Fred, one of the things that really strikes me that you that you said, and it's something that I'm instilling, or at least I'm trying to instill in my number one team, my my children, that that I'm that I'm trying that we as an organization talk to leaders about on the athletic field in in corporate America and in in Mexico, right? When we're working together in, in Mexico, which is if you see something being done that's wrong, or you hear something being said that you believe to be, not that you have a different opinion on, but that's morally wrong. If you don't say something, if you don't do something, in effect, you're supporting it. Yes. And you say, you know, you learned it at a young age, seeing it in Argentina. And by the way, Fred, you know, I don't know, (laughs) unless you walk in another person's shoes in those experiences, yeah, it's real easy to sit on the outside and say, oh, well, you should have done this or should have done that. Yeah, but you're not the one in Argentina at 15 years old seeing people being taken away in green, you know, Ford Falcons. The fear that that's inside of you, I can only imagine at a young age. And by the way, at 15, there were a lot of things in my life, a lot less scary that, that, than that, that I personally, I didn't say anything. Now, with the benefit of some experiences in life, I realize if you don't do something or say something, you're supporting it. And it's something that we have to teach on all the battlefields that we work on. Totally. But, but I, I mean, I want to acknowledge I did exactly what you said you couldn't do with me with the Germans because I was judging them throughout my life. I always, I always thought, I mean, how could these people stand, stand aside? How could they let it happen? And then I was on the other side and I let it happen. And it was so invisible. That, that is the shocking thing. Not that I did it or that I was afraid. I didn't feel like I was doing it. At the same time, it was like I was judging the Germans for not defending morality, let's call it like that, while I was being quiet and doing the same thing the Germans did. And it took me like 10 years to realize that. I was I was probably 30 when I, I had this awakening and realization and I cried a lot. It's like, shit, I, I, was, I was the German. Was I, there I, anything during that time? Well, I, Sorry, my, book, my, book, my book was translated to German 
I went to Germany and the son of a concentration camp guard had a dialogue with me, a coaching. He asked me for coaching because he was ashamed of his father. And then I realized I was ashamed of myself. Um, so the, but the, the, the crazy thing is how subtle this is. You don't notice. When, when I was in Argentina, I didn't feel like it was totalitarian. You know, we had the 1978 World Soccer Cup. We all went out in the streets and jumped. And I was like, yay, great. Argentina was the first time we won the, the, the World Cup. And we're all excited. And, and it's like all this information about the dark things that were happening in Argentina, it was being dismissed. And oh, it's against Argentina. And the Europeans are trying to undermine us. And we are, I still remember in Spanish, straight is the same word as right. So the human rights, You're right. we, had a, we had a sticker that everybody had is, we Argentinians are straight and right. Uh, like human, we're, we're sorry, we are human and, and, and straight. Like we are mm -hmm. good people. And everybody was so proud. It was pure bullshit. It was all propaganda. And I felt for it like everybody else. And it, you know, the, this is the story, but it's, it has some implications for what's happening today in the world. Uh, and that's what worries me. Um, if it's not always violence in the sense of people being kidnapped and disappeared or put in concentration camps, sometimes it's very subtle. The what, what's immoral if you don't have a clear standard of what's right and what's wrong. If you lose that mooring, then it's very hard to judge, and you can subtly fall into the side of evil, the, the dark side, and and not know you're even in fighting for the dark side. You may think this is good. And this is kind of the, the hack, like a virus that gets in your brain. And your, your goodness gets hacked and twisted. And you end up performing evil for the sake of a lofty goal. And all the worst evils that have ever been performed in the world are because of fanatical people that thought they were pursuing some high moral ground. I mean, very very... Very few people have been murdered in evil, in, in admitted evil, like a criminal. I mean, a, a very successful criminal. I mean, how many people can you murder? Like a thousand people? That, that would be a, an amazingly successful murderous career. But millions of people can be exterminated in the pursuit of what appears to be a moral objective. Because people get crazy about that. Fred, you, you mentioned... Uh, and by the way, we will circle back here, too, because you and I in our conversation yesterday, I want to know, because you talked about some of patterns that underlie success as leaders and as teams. I want to circle back to that. But you just mentioned something because I feel it's so important. It's something that I'm, I feel very passionate about right now, which is... Uh, you just said, you know, some of those things that you saw in the totalitarian regimes of World War II, of Argentina as a 15-year-old, seeing some of those same things currently in today's environment. What are some of those things, Fred? Well, I'll start from the more general and, and, be, and be more specific. But the, the first very general uh, pattern that I see is something that worries me tremendously is that 
business has been identified with greed and that capitalism has been uh, corrupted in a sense. The notion that people can have a free market and exchange for mutual gain has become a target of uh, all the ideologies that are presenting themselves as good. And, and I'll say, for example, as identify themselves as democrat socialists. I mean, I don't even know what that means, but I don't think you can be, uh, I mean, in strict terms, you cannot be a democratic socialist because socialism involves the violation of the rights of the property holders or whose property you're going to take to redistribute. Um, so, I mean, if you want to take all the means of production and give them to the state, then you first have to take them away from the people that now own them. And unless you say they've all stolen it and they haven't produced anything, well, that's as evil as it gets. So uh, culturally today, what I just said is horrible. I mean, people, people. I mean, I don't know how many people are going to lose in your audience for inviting someone that says something like this. I'll take ownership. This is my idea. We haven't discussed this, but I. Oh, it's agreed. I, I, I think. I mean, there's a cultural battle about how are we going to live together. And for me, freedom has to do with the opportunity to live your life as you see fit. And you can only deserve other people's energy and property and value if you give them something even more valuable in return, something they find more valuable in return. And that's how we add value to one another. I, I find capitalism uh, in, in the free market sense the, the best system of social cooperation ever devised, the most moral one. And the fact that now it's under so much um, fire, I would say, under attack everywhere culturally, and it's identified with the corrupt crony capitalists, the people that use government force to achieve advantages that they don't deserve through the use of subtle violence, um, that, that's seriously concerning to me. Because the pattern of success is people have to be inspired by what they do. So how can you start a business if you're inspiring people to be corrupt, um, greedy, uh, rapacious, and all that. You can't. So uh, as long as people interpret that, nobody wants to go into business. And I hear it all the time in universities. The, the, the kids are being brainwashed. So they will say, yeah, I want to start a business, but a social business. Uh, no, no, not for profit, because like, you know, profit is evil. Profit is dirty. I said, what? Profit is the measure of the value you add to other people's lives. I mean, you buy low, meaning things are relatively abundant, and you sell high because things are scarce compared to how much value people placed on them. What's wrong with that? I mean, if you do it with free exchanges, it's, it's incredible and how that yields social uh, advantages and humanity's progress. It's, it's beautiful. And yet that's terribly under attack. And then starting from that, and Fred, the, the, by the way, Fred, yeah. Fred, by the way, and, and I'd like you to talk about it more. But in, in, you know, the the thing that was interesting that, that you said that struck a chord was you said, and it's the best form of that capitalism is the best form of how we do what we do. You didn't say it's perfect, no, but you said, but it's the best of how we can do this. Uh, but that's one of the fallacies that I would say the the evil viruses uses to hack our minds. It's the comparison to nirvana. It's like, oh, look at this. This is bad. And, and, and this is bad about capitalism. And 
you know, there's inequality and some people are poor and the income distribution, blah, 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 blah. And, and then you have to ask when you are in, in, in real life, you have to ask as opposed to what? What, what, are, what are you comparing with? Because, of course, if you compare it with Nirvana, yes, everything falls short. But Nirvana, or we're not in paradise. We have to make trade-offs. We have to make choices. And not all the choices are, like, perfect. So you, you can't say, okay, here's these options, and there's one that's paradise. What do you want? No, paradise, I'm sorry, that's not available. We don't have that flavor today. In this life, we don't get that. And, and the, the art of leadership is to find the most ethical way, uh, the, the one that has the most integrity, to confront circumstances in a way that you will express these profound values in the pursuit of a noble goal, a goal that is aligned with these values. And this is the essence of Stoic philosophy, the essence of virtue, both in business and in military. And I, I like, to, I mean, I, I want to I turn it to you, Eric, because, I, I mean, I, I've learned so much about I mean, the way you describe your experiences in the military have this also sense of the warrior spirit applied in its rawest form. I, I see the warrior spirit as virtue and, and, and the commitment to a noble goal and the, the sense of community and comradeship with the, your teammates in business and in, in social civilian life. But the, the, the thing that I find incredibly rich is the opportunity to learn from both sides to because the underlying pattern is a structure that occurs on both sides so i'd love to hear i mean you're one of yes. the most interesting people i know so tell no, us, so, yeah, tell well, us fred, an interesting I, story about warriors in the military yeah, fred i appreciate that and we were saying yesterday fred and i were talking because we were laughing and i was saying that you know usually uh a i always feel like this is my ego, of course, saying this. Other people don't feel this way. No, just my ego tells me that like at the dinner table where there's a lot, lots of people around, I feel like I have to carry the conversation. Like that's my job to carry the conversation, right? We get in front of a group. I'm the guy who has to talk, right? My own uh, lack of leadership, my own ego that says that, except when I'm with Fred Kaufman, where when Fred Kaufman's in the room, I sit back, I take my notepad out, and I just start taking notes. <laughs> I just want to listen. So uh, even you, even you beat my uh, beat my ego down, Fred. Fred, you know you just mentioned um, you you just mentioned the warrior spirit, and you know, and it's interesting. And I love the fact that, and we've had long conversations about this in various beautiful locations in Mexico, uh, doing our work together down there. But, you know, people see what we do at the program and they immediately want to say, not, not all people, many people, a lot of people in academia, again, not everybody, but a lot, want to see what we do and say, oh, that's militaristic. That it's, that what you're doing is is trying to produce military leaders. And it's about always they want to pigeonhole the idea of a war, being a warrior to just the military. And it's, it's interesting because everybody who works with me at the program, all of my teammates who I'm so privileged to work with, yes, they did serve in the US, British, Israeli military, and not one of us thinks that the warrior spirit 
is somehow unique to the military. And in fact, we see it in people that we're privileged to work with at every age, Mexico, America, North, you know, throughout North America, business, athletics, in academics, warrior teachers, professors who do have the warrior spirit. But so many people, I think, want to pigeonhole us. And I think one of the main reasons is, is they're threatened by it if you if they don't have it. Mm, yes. Fred, talk about whether it's at Google or through all your work throughout that you've done. When you talk about the warrior spirit, how do you think of the warrior spirit? How do you see it? Why is it vital to our success as as leaders? Well, um, you, know, you said something very powerful, and that is the the fear of goodness and strength, because they're they, they're identified with the dark side, and it's true that force is neutral. I mean, force can be used for good or can be used for evil. So force without morality can can become the devastating. Um, mm. So so I think people are afraid because if you are not comfortable with your own darkness, with your own potential for evil, you can't control it. You cannot deal with it. Uh, and that requires a, a deep examination of what Solzhenitsyn called the, the, the evil inside everybody's heart. I mean, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has this beautiful quote where he says, it would be amazing if we could split humanity and put the good people on one side and the evil people in the other. But the line that divides good and evil just cuts through everybody's heart. And this is something that scares all of us. We're, we're afraid of our own potential for evil and for the destructive use of force. So then we deny it. And like psychologists have discovered, I mean, once you repress that knowledge about yourself, you're going to act it out in shadows. So people do act it out. And yeah, maybe not everybody looks like robust like you guys do and physically powerful, but today, physical strength is irrelevant. I mean, the, the, you, most, most murders or most destruction in the world is done electronically, like with, with weapons or with, with other things. It doesn't take a tough guy. So I think or the media. The media, um, the Twitter mobs, the, the, I mean, just deplatforming people. I mean, it, it, it's just devastating. Or perhaps with, with even scaring people about uh, how this pandemia is going to take over the world and we need to take extraordinary measures that destroy the Constitution. And all the, the Bill of Rights, now it's, it's, it's uh, secondary compared to, oh, we need to save one life is worth everything, and then you have 10,000 or 10 million lives that are being lost through means that are less visible than maybe choking to death. So, so we, we've created a society where optics are everything, and the warriors look like potentially dangerous, and it's true. We, we are potentially dangerous, but because we know we're potentially dangerous, it, part of the warrior education is the virtue. The, the training, I mean, you have this, the, the lambda, like the, 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 the Troy, uh, sorry, the Spartan lambda, the Spartan lambda uh, as, as part of the education. It's like, well, this is not about being tough like a mafia. This is about being 
controlling the power to use for nobility, for freedom, for justice, for truth. And unless you are um, like deeply steeped in those values and they become the foundations of your life, well, of course, you're going to end up like Anakin. I mean, you're going to turn Darth Vader. And that's why people <laughs> are afraid. Uh, and we live in a world where culturally, the things that I'm saying are like, oh, you're a dinosaur. I mean, that you're too old. I mean, we're in the postmodern world where everything is relative. Uh, nobody knows what's true. And we all have to accept everything. There is no truth, except that this is true, that there is no truth. And, and nobody can speak uh, with authority except the people that speak for those who don't have authority. So now the state becomes, I mean, it, it's just crazy. So Fred, the I always tell becomes my... dangerous, I would say. Fred, I always tell my, my son that normal and weird are two things that are undefinable. We can define right and wrong. There is right, there is wrong. Absolutely. Normal and weird, well, no, that's opinion. But no, there's, there, there is right, there is wrong. Now, Fred, let me ask you when you talk, because we always want to say things like, well, you know, we're, we're in this environment and you talked about the pandemic right now, right? Mm -hmm. But whether we're talking about right now in the, during this pandemic or, or not, what, what can we do as individuals on all the teams that we're a member to, to show our warrior spirit? Okay. The, the, the first thing, and, and I, 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 I so much appreciate the way you and your guys do this with the executives is the first thing is you have whatever you speak, you have to be. You cannot speak about things you are not because then you're a fraud and you lose all moral authority. Leadership is about moral authority. It's about congruence between your life and the expression of this life in your work, in your speech, in your actions. So you're your ability to be an example of excellence, an example of goodness, an example of kindness, an example of love, of justice, is the most important thing I believe any person can do for him or herself and for everybody around. Uh, this, this comes straight from Stoic philosophy. Uh, I mean, most of us, at least I was educated, to believe that my happiness depended from what happens outside. And I created a story of a victim. Like, I mean, something as simple as, why are you late? Oh, because of traffic. Yeah, it's true that I'm late because of traffic, but it's not just traffic. I have something to do with being late. I left too late given traffic. But we are predisposed and educated to look at the outside world and say, the world needs to make me happy or the world is going to make me unhappy. And I'm just there for the ride. There's not much I can do about it. And it's, it's both a sense of defeat that nothing, I can't do anything, but at the same time, a sense of self-righteous indignation that excites me into demanding that other people have to take care of me because I can't take care of myself. So the, the most important thing is, I'm sorry, carry your own freaking weight. I mean, this is stop whining and stop being a victim because the, the most important point of happiness in your life is your sense of personal power 
And, you know, Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz. And in the midst of this horrible situation, he said, well, they can do anything to me, but it's up to me how I respond to it. My ability to respond. They cannot take that from me. And he said, you know, they killed people twice. First, they killed us morally. And then they exterminated that. But they exterminated us. But the moral death was the worst. The sense of lack of agency, that there's nothing you can do. And that is false. There's always something you can do. It may not be a good outcome, but it's the best outcome. And what the, the Stoic philosophers, just to say, Mar Marcus Aurelius, for example, the, the emperor who died in a pandemia, by the way, he died taking care of people in a pandemia. Um, he, he was like all the time saying to himself, he wrote a diary and he kept saying, stop whining, stop being a victim, stop believing that there's no power in you. I mean, if this guy, the emperor of the world, really the emperor of the world, every morning had to wake up and read in his own meditations, like, I'm, I'm a victim. I, I need to step out of this. I can control. Focus on what I can control. Stop focusing, he told himself. It, it's, it's, it's very, very intense to read this meditation. It looks like he's scolding you when you read it, but he's not scolding you. He wrote that for himself. himself. It, was published, it was published posthumously. So it's, it's very intense self-scolding, like or a reminder. He said, you can only control what you can control. And that's enough. That's the big thing. That's enough. So you can exemplify that sense of power, of personal purpose, invite other people to join you. You can manifest what's right. I mean, Nietzsche has a phrase that says, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And people use it like, oh, you know, I'm tough. I say, no, no, no. When you are in justice, even what kills you makes you strong. It's not about the success, like I'm a tough guy and you know, I'm going to survive this. I know you climbed Everest. I love climbing. I climbed Aconcagua too. I say, like, but when I went to climb Aconcagua, I was thinking, I want to faint. I mean, my real goal is I'm going to walk until I faint. And if I don't faint, I'll reach the top. And if I faint, I'll come back as proud of as if I had gotten to the top because I did my best and now my body gave up and, and I turned. So, of course, I trained before. I didn't faint, so I got to the top. But I, I swear, I, I would have been equally proud if I had fainted. And I said, I gave it 150%. I turned, I faint once, now I turn, I come back with the guide, and that's it. So, I mean, I, I really want to hear a story from you because this, this is really about the military because I know that the warrior ethos is, is not that we are always going to win. Like Henry V, he's not saying, hey, we're going to fight and we're going to kill the bastards. He's saying, no, whoever has no stomach for this fight, let him depart. But, you know, we don't want to die in this man's company. So this sense of honor and duty that even in the face of death, you say it's not about just winning. We win morally when we behave with truth, with justice. And I really, I, I'm not going to say one more word until you tell me a story about that. Fred, let me, um, I will <clears throat> get choked up here. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that, but it won't be from the military. Uh, it's something much closer to home. You talked about climbing Aconcagua, and you're going to give your 100%. And if I faint, <laughs> I faint, but that's my 100%. In the last um, 
uh, you've heard me talk about it we we uh, numerous times my wife and i we, we got married later in life we have an eight-year-old son axel we got married well we got married fred in in costa rica and then uh two weeks later we're in everest base camp in tibet uh, i always make the joke when i show the tent that we lived in uh about what a catch i am your honeymoon yeah, what a catch I am, right? As a as as a husband, right? Uh, here, get to marry me, and then and then two weeks later, we're going to be sleeping on a glacier. Uh, but we we had our son almost, you know, nine months after we we got married, and then we thought, well, hey, a year later, okay, let's let's have our second child. Didn't work out that way. Hmm. Um, my my wife had had a number of different challenges. We had a number of different challenges getting and staying pregnant. Um, with what we hope to be our second child. My wife then went through four and a half years of IVF, in vitro fertilization. I say my wife went through it because the guy does very little <laughs> uh, in IVF. The woman's getting shots in all kinds of places all day long. And after four and a half years of IVF, we have three viable embryos left. Uh, I'm sorry. Because of her risk factors, they would want to insert, reinsert three viable embryos back into the woman, in this case, my wife. We didn't have that. We had one. And on that one, my wife got and stayed pregnant with my daughter, who's now three years old, just turned three years old. During that time, Fred, we decided we never lost hope, but we could do some basic statistics. And we decided, okay, well, look, we want to have a bigger family, so let's adopt. And we went through the whole adoption process, but we did it domestically here in the US. We have a biological child. Now my wife gets pregnant. She's high risk. She can't, she can't travel. She's breastfeeding. Now we have an infant child and all of these things had slowed down our ability to adopt another child. Anyway, Fred, uh, about three months ago, we decided, my wife and I decided, look, we're not going to adopt a child. It hasn't worked out for us up to now. We're not going to do it. We're, we'll, we'll foster care children. Yeah. So I went to a foster care open house and did a lot of research. And we're all set to, to become foster parents. Fred, the following week, we got a call from the adoption agency saying, hey, you've been selected to adopt a child by this birth mother and her boyfriend. The boyfriend's a former enlisted U.S. Marine. He liked the idea that I was a Marine. He liked the idea of their son growing up in a house with some structure. So my wife and I, we really had to talk about it. We had to talk about our, to our children about it. We decide, okay, we're going to do this. We'll adopt this child. We find out that it's going to be a little baby boy. Um, we we decide to name the little baby boy, Eric Lewis Capitulic Jr. As we discussed, there's, uh, you know, he won't be from my wife and I biologically, but what else can we do other than name him after me to make him feel like he is? Last week on Wednesday, the woman gave birth. On Friday, I picked up, I went down because of the coronavirus. There's some limitations here. So I went and I picked up our son. 
Uh, that was on Friday. On Wednesday of this week, uh, the birth mother changed her mind and decided that she wanted the child back. So on Wednesday night, with my mm. wife in tears, both of my children, my eight-year-old son, my three-year-old daughter, crying as hard as they've ever cried, um, I had to take the baby and drive him back to his the social worker who then would give that baby to his birth parents. And on the way there, um, back to, to New York uh, to drop off their son, I my wife had texted me and said, and again, we left, when I left home, Axel, my son was broken up. I mean, they had bonded with, and this is gonna be their baby brother. My wife had texted me and said, hey, do you think we uh, let Axel stay home from school tomorrow? Meaning virtually, not, not, not do school. And I immediately texted her back and said, you know, look, whatever you think is whatever you want, I'll support. Well, we kept on with the drive and, and I kept giving it more thought. And I texted her back and said, hey, if it's OK, if you haven't already talked to him, I'd like him to go to school tomorrow. Anyway, drop the baby off. I drive home. Uh, I stop right outside of our house, right outside of our town. I stop at McDonald's. I pick up some McDonald's for our family, my, my, my children. Uh, they don't get it often, but, but that was the night we're going to get McDonald's. I stop and get McDonald's. I come home. We have dinner. Uh, this is late at night. And I talked to my son. My daughter had already been to sleep. And I thought about that conversation, Fred, when you were talking about, look, I may faint, but I'm going to give my 100%. I said, Axel, I want to talk to you about two things. Number one, I want to clearly define to you success and failure. Many people throughout your life are going to define success and failure as winning and losing. Although important in life, although important, winning and losing does, is not how we define success and failure at the Capitulic House. It's not how I define success and failure for myself. I, it's, it's not the, the barometer that I'm going to talk to you about success and failure. Success is giving your 100% in your preparation. Don't just go to Aconcagua and say, okay, well, I'm going to give my 100% today. You're not getting to the summit because you haven't prepared at your 100%. But if you've given your 100% in your preparation and you give your 100% during the execution phase of whatever it is that you do, choose to do in life, that's success. Failure, well, failure is not doing that. That's it. Now, if you give your 100% in your preparation and you give your 100% in the execution, yes, sometimes you will win and sometimes you will lose. Sometimes you will get to the mountaintop and other times you won't. In either case, you're a success. Number two, let me talk to you. Daddy doesn't know a whole lot about SMART. I do know a little bit of something about tough, though. Tough guys have emotions. 
Tough guys show emotions. Really tough guys can talk about emotions. And really tough guys can ask for help if they need help when dealing with those emotions. Make sure you do so. Hey, you're sad right now. I, I understand it. I, I'm sad too. Horribly sad. Mom is. Your sisters. We're all sad. It's okay to cry. Cry. A week from now, maybe something reminds you of, of Eric Jr. It's okay to cry then too. If you need help, ask for help. And do it throughout your entire life. That, that makes you a tough guy. What also makes you a tough guy is you're going to have all of these emotions, all of these things. But what tough guys also do, and by guys, Fred, I mean the universal term guys, men and women, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. What tough guys also do, though, is win or lose. Tomorrow morning, when we get up, we move forward. We go to work. Mom and dad are going to get up tomorrow morning. We're going to go to work. And you're going to go to school. Because that's what tough guys do. Sometimes we're give your hundred percent in the preparation and the execution. That's going to be what makes you a success or a failure. Sometimes you'll win, sometimes you'll lose. But if you're a tough guy, you're going to get up the following day and go to work. When you talked about Aconcagua and you're talking about, I'm going to give my hundred percent. I might faint on the way up. Yeah, and guess what? Okay, so I fainted. It doesn't mean you're a failure. I mean, I, I mention all the time, Fred, and you know this. I climbed up, I climbed uh, Mount Everest. Yeah, I also tried climbing Nanga Parbat, the ninth tallest mountain in the world. I didn't get close to the summit. Not close. The following day, after Everest and after Nanga Parbat, I woke up and I went to work. It's about getting better. Let's move forward. Let's get better. Fred, as you were talking about your story, that struck a chord with me. I got emotional about it because I was thinking about my conversation with my son. And that's why when you talk about a warrior spirit, <laughs> please let's not pigeonhole it to, to the military. The, the, the warrior spirit can be and should be on any battlefield. Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you, Eric. I mean, that's a very touching story. I'm, I'm moved by it. I'm, uh, it. It exemplifies what you told your son. It exemplifies perfectly the warrior spirit. And uh, I mean, I want to just resonate with that. And the, the, uh, also the idea of what toughness really means, that toughness is not I'm a macho guy, you know, nothing touches me. On the contrary, toughness is the ability to be open to receive the world, to be hurt by it, and to know that no hurt detracts from success. The happiness that's so big that includes the sorrow. That's the, that's the goal. And what I found is that it, anything you do is a battlefield. Anything is a practice for this. Because no matter what challenge you're facing, you have the opportunity to do your best, to act in to act out your values, to act with justice, with kindness. But there, there's a hierarchy of things to pursue too. Because, I mean, like I could say, 
I can give my best to get my new Ferrari. And it's not bad. I mean, you can work and try to get a, a new car. But that, in my hierarchy, is less than giving my best to, to love another human being. Like your story is not doing your best to succeed in something trivial, to get a good grade, to, to make you know, a million dollars or something. This is to, well, to, to grow life, to, to first try it with your wife, then adopt a child, provide foster care. I mean, this is all, this is not a trivial thing. Your purpose, it's as important as the strength of your pursuit of the purpose, because if you have a nefarious purpose, then that's what I mean by the toughness and the warrior spirit can turn evil. And that's what people are afraid. The, the lack of education about justice, about freedom, about love, about the search for truth. These are the stoic virtues, the, 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 the sense of a, a life well lived. So if, if I use our Judeo-Christian background to say, you know, love God and love one another. These are, this is the only commandment. So the sense of loving the divine energy that manifests reality, loving life, and then loving every human being as an expression of that divine energy and granting the respect, the freedom, the, the opportunity for every entity that's built in the semblance of God with free will to manifest that and to support that, to enhance that. This, this commitment to support the growth and well-being of other people, in, in Greek it's called agape, which is the, 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 the charitable love. The, this is the, the complement of the warrior spirit in terms of toughness and success. Like, okay, if I die pursuing that, well, it was a life well lived. What can I say? It's a good death. Um, and and I, I don't mean this frivolously. I mean, it, it is <clears throat> it's part of the ethos of the military, but it's, it's the ethos of every warrior. I mean, when you start up a company, you say, well, if we fail, it was a good failure. I mean, this is worth doing because we were, our impulse, it's not just to prove that we can or it's not an ego-driven thing. It's really like a, an expression of my love for, for other people, for humanity, for offering a new idea in the world, for seeking truth, for creating beauty, for finding justice. This, this is so important that it deserves our best. It deserves our training. Yes, I mean, climbing a mountain is an example of that, but the ultimate mountain is the moral mountain, is the mountain of ethics, the mountain of love and justice. And how, where, where do people get that education today? Today, <clears throat> the postmodern world is like, there is no justice, there are no mountains, everything is flat. You just walk around and you meander, and it's the same, you go right, you go left, it doesn't matter. And this is so corrupting, so destructive. But then anybody who, who gets really committed to something is like, oh, this guy is dangerous. Because yeah, he, 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 yeah, we we're all like afraid because we're not supposed to have strong, so strong principles. We're supposed to be all lukewarm about everything and, you know, cool. And, and, and then, yeah, I mean, like, you know, don't, don't laugh, just have sex with everybody. We're in the Tinder generation. And, you know, it's, it's totally different. I mean, frivolous sex it has nothing to do with love and the sexual encounter that brings the energies together as a manifestation of the divine energy. It, and and the, the second is a lot sexier. I mean, it's not like you give something up, but we are in, yeah. a, in a culture where that is not acceptable. That it, it's either pornography or you're an incel. And, and it's like crazy. So I, I think the, the warrior spirit in pursuit of a noble mission is the archetype of what 
a human being can be at least one of the archetypes, I would say the, the, the masculine or the young archetype. And then it's the yin archetype of the receptive, the, the, the holy mother and all that. So we, we live in this balance between the masculine and the feminine energies in everybody's heart. This is not about men and women. But we need this sense of higher purpose, something that would be worth training. Like we love mountains. I love free diving too. Like I want to get, you know, 150 feet and then, then I'll just trick. But, but really that, that's, that's like the, the practice battle. Right? That's, that's like when you're training before deployment, because you know, the real battle is coming and the real battle in life is the battle for justice. It's the battle for principles. It's not the battle for any material thing. It's the battle for the opportunity of the human spirit to soar. And Fred, you know, is in the thing that struck me as you're talking is because our children do grow up in the society that they grew up in with, uh, you know, my son, my son, because of Twitter and, and some of these things, he'll ask me and, and he doesn't. I mean, he's eight, like we don't allow so much of the stuff. Right. But he, he still knows like, Hey daddy, he asked me this the other night, daddy, can you go on and, and see how many likes you had over something that we had done? And I told him, I said, no, no, we're, we're not going on to see how many likes daddy had because daddy could care less how many likes he had. And, and I, I would really be disappointed Axel if at any point in your life, you care about how many likes you get. I'll be really disappointed in, in the job I did as a as a parent. If it truly matters to you how many likes you get, I feel like I will have failed as a parent if it does. Because for daddy, I care about what you think. I care about what your sister thinks. I care about what mom thinks. That's what I care about. And I hope then as an extension to that, my extended family, the, the, the men and women I work with, I hope that they have a great opinion about, or at least respect mm -hmm. me, have a high opinion about me. And then my dearest friends, my dearest friends, the, the people whom I respect, the Fred Kaufmans of the world, I hope they have a, they quote unquote, like me. Everybody else who I, I couldn't give a about. Yeah. Well, and, and, the, and the earlier we can teach that to our young people, just like the 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 things I was talking about the other night with Axel when I came home over McDonald's French fries. Too often I hear things like, "Oh, hey, they're only five. Hey, they're only eight. Oh, he's only he she is she's only twelve. Look, who you are at eight is who you are at eighteen is who you are at sixty eight. The sooner we can." start imparting, mentoring, teaching right and wrong. It doesn't guarantee success, but not doing it guarantees our failure. Yes, but well, but let me, I, I don't think you size the, the magnitude of this battle. I mean, you're not, you're not just fighting culture. You're fighting biology and natural evolution about the likes. So, I mean, why the hell do we like McDonald's food instead of kale salad? I mean, if you ask Axel, do you want French fries or you want kale salad? You don't need to teach a child to eat French fries. We love those. 
I mean, this is this is not and this is not culture. I mean, you take a baby, uh, you give a chocolate to a baby, or or you you offer them uh, like lettuce, and and guess what they're going to choose. But now we know lettuce is a lot healthier than chocolate. Why the hell? I mean, how can we evolve to like the things that kill us? Well, for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of human evolution. Uh, of starving to death was infinitely higher than your probability of having heart disease or you know all the diabetes or all the diseases that come from sugar. So naturally, our ancestors who didn't like sugar starved to death because they didn't get fat when there was sugar around. And the ones that wanted sugar and liked sugar survived. So we are the offspring of the sugar addicts. <laughs> So we're all addicted to sugar, we're all addicted to likes, we're all addicted to anxiety, we're all addicted to thinking about the next thing that is going to give me pleasure, we're all addicted to being victims. And this is biological, it's not even cultural. So it's, it's really an uphill battle. First, within yourself, to develop the discipline to say, yes, I do like chocolate ice cream, I do like french fries, I am not going to eat these things every day because I don't like where they take me. So it's not like we don't like the likes. I mean, I'm, I hope people that are watching us like it, and you know, yeah. it, it, it gives you a boost. So it, it, but it takes a lifetime of training to say I don't give a damn about this. I mean, I know I. I mean, it's like I want the sugar, and I'm not going to have it. Why? Because it makes me weak. Because it prevents me from pursuing my noble purpose. Because I feel I'm betraying my values. I mean, I, there's this beautiful story about uh, a mother. Uh, I'm going to replug my computer i don't know what happened but i'm afraid i want to tell you the story of gandhi just give me a second yeah, yeah sure for the for the listeners so uh, as fred this, this, sets this, this, back this, up yeah as, as for the listeners it says fred's back up i really appreciate the questions we're gonna when fred gets done with this uh presentation and fred i'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here but we're doing another one of these, Fred. Okay, sure, but I'll, I'll tell I, you the story. I, I, I have to tell be, you the guy because I, I have to. I, I want to. There's so much that I want to hear from you, but but when Fred and and I, we are gonna Fred, we're gonna do a, a speed round at the end here with all sure. the questions that have come in because they're powerful. Okay, sure. but go ahead, Fred. Yeah, well, no, go ahead. I mean, th this is a very short story. It's it's super powerful about uh, an example of excellence. A, a mother, By the way, Fred. I'm, Fred, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, one of the things as you're talking that 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 I was thinking about was it's something that I, I talk constantly to as as a leader, whether that be my in my family for the program with all of our clients, regardless of athletic or corporate, is what you're discussing, right? When you talk about the sugar, as an example, which I know is just a metaphor for so many other things in life, but but is you know the difference between happiness and pleasure. Exactly. Yes. Right. Is I can do things that might give me the sugar might give me pleasure, but it's the ability of a long, healthy life that makes me happy. Exactly. So I have to be disciplined enough to forego yes. the pleasure to make myself happy. That's pure Buddhism, by the way. That, that's almost a quote from one of the sutras. There's happiness and there's bliss. And those who want the latter have to forego the former. I probably didn't know that, but that, that's a, a literal quote from uh, Buddhist scripture. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a story about Gandhi. A mother brought his child to Gandhi uh, because uh, he was like a saint. So, so the mother brought the child and 
said, Gandhi, please tell my child not to eat sugar. I mean, he keeps eating sugar. He, he's going to be unhealthy. And, you know, we came from very far to see you. Please tell my son no more sugar. And Gandhi said, okay, um, I, I can do it, but you have to come back next week. And I said, okay. Maybe he doesn't have time. So she left. They came from a far distance. So next week she comes back. And uh, Gandhi looks at the child and says, don't eat sugar. And the mother's like, that's it? She said, yeah, that's it. Said, Why didn't you tell him last week? Why did you make me come back? He said, last week I ate sugar. <laughs> but you see the same words, don't eat sugar, said by someone who eats sugar are corrupt. You need to stop eating sugar before you can tell other people don't eat sugar. You need to stop being lazy before you can tell other people stop being lazy. You need to be noble before you can inspire other people to be noble and live by their values. And this is one of the things that I really, I mean, I want to appreciate you and your guys have that is like you are what you preach. You, you're, you're real. And, and it's so strange to find in the world, so rare to find examples that that come from inside like you don't eat sugar you don't just say don't eat sugar you don't just say be disciplined you you are disciplined and you live with discipline i've seen you train i mean you pay the man as you say we have to go and yeah laziness is like sugar all these things we need to hack our own nervous system because our nervous system has evolved to deceive us our genes want us to procreate and die i mean that's the life that naturally we would live just eat a lot, have many offspring, and then die because the genes want to just go to the next generation. This is Darwinism. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm yeah. saying it yeah. uh, like like funny, but but this is exactly what natural evolution is about. And we need to stop that and make a choice to be happy. But that's a choice. That's a choice by free will, by your mind, by your heart, your effort. It's not natural. This is very unnatural. It's divine. So let's do the speed round. No, Fred, you know, you were you were talking, right? And I appreciate the compliment about us, in effect, practicing what we preach. Yeah. Let me be completely transparent that I was not in what we preach is be great teammates and great team leaders in, in a nutshell. I mean, it's a lot more than that, but ultimately it comes down to be the best teammates and the best team leaders you can be on all the teams that of which we're privileged to be a part. I haven't always been to what now in my life is my most important team, which is my wife. And I read a book called Stronger Fathers, Stronger Daughters. And there was a line from the book that it didn't change me. It sparked the change because for real change, you then have to go just do a whole lot of work to using some of your words, you have to be incredibly disciplined about it. And you've got to hold yourself personally accountable. Ultimately, there's no easy way. There's no shortcuts. There's just be disciplined, do disciplined things and, and hold yourself personally accountable. But in the book, the, the line in the book was be the husband you would want your daughter to marry. And I thought, you know, I've been inauthentic because I tell everybody else, hey, be great teammates and great team leaders. And well, yeah, I am on these, this team and this team and this team and this team. Yeah, but it it's like any value, selfless, 
Well, if you're only selfless to your children, but not the kids down the street, you're not really a selfless person. You're just selfless with your children. You're not a great teammate and a great team leader if you're only a great teammate and a great team leader on some of the teams of which you're a part. Be all in. I wasn't always. And it's something I regret. That That's my number one regret in my life. If, and, and that might be my only regret in my life because I've been I've had a fortunate life. But it's something that has stuck out yeah. uh, that I wanted to share because all of us – uh, that's all of us. I feel all of us are trying to get better. We, 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 we've made mistakes in our past. We, we do fall short of the, the, the best that we can be. And therefore don't define success as the mountaintop D- define it as we're talking in, as you mentioned about climbing Aconcagua, Aconcagua, by the way, is the tallest mountain in South America is for the listeners is and by the way, uh, Fred, I'm sure you know this, but the tallest mountain outside of the Himalaya. Uh, but it's it's the getting better process. It's giving your 100%. You're going to win. You're going to lose. Just keep giving your 100%. Get better. Um, we all have to try it. We're going to fall short. Let's just get up tomorrow morning and go to work. Fred, a couple – let me let me put my glasses on here. Let me uh, – let me um, go. First of all, I'm going to start with a with a with the Starling family, Fred. You've seen Fred the helicopter crash that my Marines and I were involved in. Mm-hmm. This question is from the the. I, it's under Grandel Starling, I, but but I'm not. Maybe he and maybe maybe the the parents are watching it together. So I don't I don't know who exactly it is, but. Um, their son lost their life that day in the helicopter. And first and foremost, from uh, Mr. and Mrs. Starling, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you watching today. Um, And just know that uh, a day doesn't go by that I don't think about your son. He's not forgotten. They ask... What is inequality? Is it something you work at or work not to let happen? We need to work it out and move on. How do you look at inequality, Fred? Well, um, there's a way in which this word has been weaponized because we all know justice is a good thing and we're in a quest for justice. But similar to what you said, the comparison with Nirvana or perfect, what, what, when people say, oh, look at the distribution of income, it's very unequal. Some people have a lot, some people have little. But we can look at the distribution of intelligence. Some people have a lot, some people have little. We can look at the distribution of uh, birthplace. Some people are born in the U.S., some people are born in some horrible village in Africa where they'll be recruited to be child soldiers. Uh, Some of us are born to families that love us. Some of us are born to families that abuse us. So is that fair? No, it's horrible. So uh, Thomas Sowell, an amazing professor from Stanford, a black economist, Mm -hmm. who was born in a ghetto, by the way, 
He says it's I've very read a difficult. couple of his books that he's yeah he has genius. He's total genius. He has a book yeah. called The Quest for Cosmic Justice, and the quest for cosmic justice is kind of a free pass for evil people to use violence to try to achieve social justice. There is no social justice. There's only justice. Now you can say cosmic justice. We have to make sure everybody ends in the same place. And if you have, I mean, there's a great uh, story by um, Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron, where to make people equal, well, if you are athletic, then you have to carry weights. If you're pretty, you have to wear a mask. If you're intelligent, they'll put your ringer in your ear that de destroys your concentration because it's not fair that some people are smarter than others. And the only justice we can have in this life, the only inequality, is the equality in the eyes of God, the equality in the eyes of the law, the same process for everybody. Unfortunately, because we are born unequal with different endowments of gifts, well, some people are going to be great basketball players, and some people will do quantum computing. And, you know, I'm not particularly the basketball player type. So I, when I was a child, I always thought, well, I would like to see Maradona trying to solve a system of differential equations. was my way to, like, stroke my own ego, uh, because I can't play soccer like him, but he can't solve, he can't do math <laughs> like I do. And, and, you know, some of us have some gifts to compensate, but some people are just, they get the short end of the stick. I mean, it's just, it's not fair. And, and we all agree it's not fair. Now the question is, how are you going to write this cosmic unfairness? Because it's not like God is assigning things unfairly and then we have to write that wrong. The only way that doesn't lead to absolute disaster is the same rule. Right? We can call it the rule of law. We can call it the, the natural law for everybody and no special privileges. Because once you start giving privileges to right the wrongs of the original endowment, things go around. Now, of course, each one of us can feel a personal responsibility to correct or ameliorate that. So, you, you know, a, a child is born without a family and you adopt the child. That's a beautiful thing. So in terms of voluntary commitments, the desire to help other people, to, to feel the sense of responsibility, I did not earn my mind. I mean, why was I born like this? You did not earn your physical prowess, your discipline. We didn't earn it. We just got it. It's a gift from God. When it, I mean, I'm using this language figuratively. That you don't have to be a believer uh, or a religious person. It's just that's the way it happened. And you know, it's not fair. Why was I born to a loving family and some other people are born in horrible places where their family abandons them? So I feel the responsibility and the commitment, the desire to voluntarily, out of love, help other people blossom. I, I live through something. Now, the moment someone comes from the outside and says, I'm going to make you do it. I'm going to redistribute your income. I'm going to take away your property to give it to other people because it's not fair that you have and they don't. Oh, you open Pandora's box that will destroy humanity. I, sometimes I tell my students in the university, I say, we're going to do redistribution of academic income. That means everybody gets average. So the ones that have a higher grade than average, I'm going to tax you, and I'll subsidize the students that have less than average. And then everybody gets the same grade. Do you want that scheme? And everybody's like, no way, no, no, it's not fair. And also, I mean, the shirkers are going to get the same way, and at the end, everybody gets a zero because nobody studies. And it's like, yes, yes. So what do you like yeah. income redistribution taxes? I mean, how, how, so, so the, the inequality, there's something very 
true about the fact that cosmically, the endowment that people are born with is unequal. And the lives are, I mean, good luck, but it's, it, it, and, and it's, it's not pleasant. I mean, I, 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 this is something that good people feel in their heart, the desire to correct, to, to ameliorate. And out of love, it's a beautiful thing. But this is what I meant by how the political naivete will yield a hacking of this good instinct and turn it into a corrupt kind of socialistic. Why is everybody, all, all the young people, why are they so, because they say it's not fair. And it's true, it's not fair. Let's give the other people something better. I, I, I'm 100% that. But the moment you cross the line and you start using violence, aggression, and putting a gun to people's heads to say, you are going to give me your energy, your effort, your property, so I can correct the wrongs that uh, come cosmically, uh, we are in big trouble. And this is, that, that's why I quote Thomas Sowell. He's, I, I love his term, the, the quest for cosmic justice that ends up destroying justice. People don't say cosmic justice, they say social justice, but it's exactly the same thing. Being a social mm -hmm. justice warrior is arguing for the corruption of humanity. I don't know any other way of saying it. Fred, the, that idea and what, you know, getting back to the adoption or, or foster care, what the, the, we feel, the Capitulic family feels, I, I don't want to speak for, for my teammates at the program, but a number of us feel that the, the best thing that we can do to uh, right some of the social inequality, right, is provide better opportunity. Yes. And that, that starts with the right to an education and not just any education, but a, a, a standard of education, starting the younger you, we can do it, the, the better for, for all of Americans, Mexicans, Argentinians around the world, that will get us to a better place more than any other, well here, take this money. You, we're just creating a renter's society saying here, we'll just take money from one, give it to the other. Yes, in the short term, that person might feel, well, okay, now I have more money. You still have the same problem, underlying problems. Until we can address education, which education provides opportunity, it's, it will be, we'll be a hamster on a let, wheel. Let, let me build on that. This is beautiful. I mean, I, 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 we, we, we can do live things. This is extraordinary because, I mean, imagine if someone said, everybody has a right to a family. So I'm going to force you to adopt. That would be a disaster. <laughs> There's an economist called Frederic Bastiat who wrote a famous book in the 1800 called The Law. And he said, I, I'll, I'll summarize it, but essentially the argument is the only right you have is the right to be left alone. The only right, it's called negative rights. Because the moment you attribute to yourself or to anybody a positive right, like the right to education, you're violating someone else's negative right because someone has to provide that education. How are you going to provide the education without forcing someone to provide it? That doesn't mean that good people like us cannot adopt, cannot donate, cannot give free education, put our time and energy, but out of love, not out of coercion. 
the law, <clears throat> any law is coercive. So a right is something you have the right to demand, like you have a right to your property. If someone tries to steal, you have the right to use violence to prevent that person from stealing your property. Trump, you have a right to your life. If someone is trying to hurt your children, you have the right to kill them to prevent them if someone gets in your house with the intention to harm. But you don't have a right to other people's property. You cannot, I mean, and, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a longer argument, I'm condensing it, but essentially, only way not to violate the negative rights, the freedom, the life, the property of other people, is not to attribute to anybody a positive right that they have the right to infringe your negative rights. So when people say education or health, of course, they are beautiful gifts of modern society. And I hope we all educate ourselves to have a responsibility to provide that. But I, I, am, I shudder crossing the line to say, now the people, let's say someone who live the let's say a drug addict that is living a totally deleterious life and now this person gets sick and say now i have a right you have to pay for my health you have you have to you have to give me medicine you have to do that and i have the right to demand that because i have a right to health you'd say well nobody i'm sorry i mean you 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 were an alcoholic a drug addict i mean you didn't ask for help now you come you demand this what are you talking about you don't have a right to to to, to me providing you health and this is the coercive part that destroys the love. I am 100% with you in the love. It's like, I, I want to work. I'm willing to give my life for a world where everybody can get an education, everybody that wants. But I will fight and I will put my life on the line to preempt people from saying, they, anybody can demand your servant uh, or your service as a slave to provide an education for others. No, no, this is like free speech. You have a right to say anything you want, but you can't come and say it in my house. My house is mine, so you have the free speech in your house. And, and it, it, it's such a, it's, it's so important to educate people about these principles and then to combine the warrior spirit. This is what I meant before, the warrior spirit with the intelligence about social political systems. How do we create the closest thing to heaven on earth that we can. No, we can't make heaven on earth, but we can create a society that's based on love, on freedom, justice, where we, we adopt kids. I mean, it's such a beautiful metaphor. And this is not social services imposing a child on you that you didn't choose and the mother doesn't want you to have and so on. That's where we get in trouble. And I mean, just to take another example, well, the, 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 the horrible stories of like in, in Australia, the Aboriginal children being taken from their family yeah for the sake of being educated. It's like, well, they have a right and, and so on, and the government has a right to take them. So it's a very delicate and very subtle difference to stay in the side of love and not move in the side of imposition. And, and we all need to learn as a society how to create social cooperation mechanisms that will take the best and help people flourish and blossom without violating the rights of other people who want to live their life as they see fit, may not be the way I want, but my only thing is to ostracize or to, to, to segregate and say, I don't want to associate with these people. They can be there, but I, I won't aggress against them. That's right. That's right. Fred, from uh, I, this Fred right here, I said earlier in the conversation, the most interesting man in the world until my conversation last night with my wife this is from Nate Braid, and Nate Nate owns again. Oh. And when uh, after all this, started his own company, online learning resource called America and the World. 
This is Nate Braden. I gladly concede my number one ranking to Fred. Uh, question for Fred. Have you ever read The Road to Serfdom? Von Haig's views on the mark free market influenced Argentina's effort to break its inflation in the 1980s. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I assigned. Fred, Fred, and by the way, Fred, by the way, just from the question, you can understand why until you, Nate was my most interesting uh, was the most interesting man in the world. Go ahead. Uh, uh, the you know the Zen monk says it takes a thief to know another. So yeah. uh, we, we're, we're I mean we, we're we can have a society of mutual admiration here. Yeah. Right? And, and, yeah. and I, I'd be glad to include Nate here too. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean I, I I've read the road to serve them. It's a gateway drug, so to speak. Uh, uh, Mises was Hayek's uh, teacher, is my favorite economist, um, and the modern version of the Austrian school, uh, the, li the libertarians um, that uh, are, are also, kind of, it's called paleo-libertarianism, so, or, or conservative libertarianism, which is totally conservative culturally, but very uh, opposed to violence and government imposition politically. Uh, it's it's a it's a very weird combination, and Hayek is a perfect example of very strong values, moral principles, and at the same time, very strong protection of people's rights to live their lives, even not by these values, as long as they don't infringe on the rights of others. Uh, so yes, definitely. Unfortunately, the road to serfdom is the road of Argentina, and it has only gotten worse. Like today, Argentina. I mean, in in nineteen in in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, Argentina and the U.S. were almost equal in terms of income per capita, and that's why my my family, when they escaped my ancestors, they escaped Russia, they chose Argentina, and th that looked like a better deal than than the U.S. Now, one hundred and thirty years later, uh, Argentina is a disaster. I mean, it's like fifty percent below the poverty line. People are starving. I mean, the, the, it's it's crazy. It was such a, it is such a rich country, has all the natural resources. Yeah. Why? Because it went down this road to serve them, exactly what Hayek describes. Political abuse, economic collapse, misery. It's, it's just a, it's, it's a cautionary tale and an object lesson for everybody who's thinking, oh, yeah, let's trust government to organize our society. Yeah. Uh, Fred, let me shift gears on you and go to Google specifically. Good friend of the program, uh, Coach Aaron Cash. Uh, Fred, a little bit of background on Coach Cash. Um, pe uh, people have said to me, uh, you know, Cap, you're intense. Now, I don't see it personally. I just feel like, man, I'm a, I, I feel like I'm a loving, open, warm guy. But People will say, Cap, you're really intense. Push-ups. <laughs> well, Fred, I'll say this. Whatever level of intensity you think I'm at, Coach Cash is at a completely other – Aaron is at a completely different level of intensity than, than I am. Um, that's why I love her and her husband and, and, her, and her family. They run a great uh, – she's a high school coach, a very successful uh, girls lacrosse team, high school girls lacrosse mm -hmm. team. In Massachusetts, she and her husband run the best women's uh, girls. You know, you know, from from young to to uh, almost college, uh, travel lacrosse team called Rev Lacrosse, which uh, takes you know just great young women and make them into also great 
lacrosse players. Uh, but coach, but Aaron is, is a high school coach as well. She talks about Google specifically. Do they hire leaders or develop leaders? If they develop them, how? What's your vision of the ultimate leader? Um, yeah, the, 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 the word leader, I find it's a little deceptive. Uh, I think leader, leader is the person that leads. So it's not necessarily a, a personal characteristic of, of a person, like an ingrained thing, like you are a leader. It, it's like being a batter or being a runner. Well, you have to be both. Like you are, you are whatever can become, uh, play as a batter or play as a runner if you're playing baseball. So uh, my definition of leading or leadership is to <clears throat> inspire the internal commitment. So elicit other people's best in service of a mission. You can do it in sports, you can do it in the military, you do it in business. Every time people get together for some common purpose, leadership is the person that is able to inspire others with moral authority to pursue this goal with ultimate energy and commitment. Whoever does that is leading. Now, do we at Google hire them or train them both? We look for people that have the potential. And I think everybody has the potential. It's like singing. Everybody can sing. Not everybody is going to be Freddie Mercury. Uh, some people are extraordinary. But everybody can sing better. No matter how well you sing, you can sing better. And I, I'm more interested in helping everybody get this much better, as I learned from you every day at leading, than looking for the next star. Like there's, there's one Freddie Mercury, but there are a billion singers in the world. So what's more important? I mean, I, the, the beauty of Freddie Mercury is that he will inspire thousands, millions of people to practice singing and, and say, wow, look at this voice or Caruso or, or Placido Domingo. I mean, you, you just hear and it's like, oh, my God, this, this, this is divine energy coming through. But then I want to help everybody breathe and sing a little better. So at Google, we hire people that have the desire to grow. And then as they become exemplars, uh, they can lead other people with moral authority because they are what they preach. So that, that's, that's essentially our path to, to recognize the capacity uh, and to then develop it inside. If you're not listening to Freddie Mercury, who are you listening uh, in uh, Queen? And if, and, you know, if not Freddie Mercury in Queen, who, who are you listening to? Now I'm, I'm, I'm really into uh, a DJ that's called Akira the Dawn, and he has something called Meaning Wave. And he's taking podcasts of people like Joko Willing, your, your brother, Navy SEAL, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, um, even from Herbert, uh, uh, Bruce, Bruce Herbert, the, the author of Dune, uh, and, and, and it's profoundly meaningful texts. And then he put music to it, a music that's a little entrancing. He takes Alan Watts, who's an East-West philosopher. I, I mean, Elon Musk, Naval Ravikant. I mean, he'll take the, the dark web people and he'll just put this very entrancing music behind. So I exercise with that. It's, it's like, I've, I, he has like, Joko Willing has this one, discipline. And he's like, okay, one more rep and discipline. And, or, or when he tells the story of good, I think it's, it's in his book, uh, discipline equals freedom. It says whenever something goes really bad, he has a way to deal with it and says, good, 
and you make it good. And you say, like, okay, you got hurt, good, you needed a rest. And uh, the equipment didn't come, good, you can use the old one that you know. And, we and listen, then, we, we listened to it in Mexico uh, with one of yeah, your... Yeah, that, that, with one of your, when we were down there working with uh, some of the businessmen and women in, in Mexico. It was, yeah, it was that, great. That, that's Akira the that's Dawn. And, you know, I encourage people to check out his uh, playlist. It's, it's a really cool guy. Um, we already kind of, I want to make sure, Isaac, we gave you uh, some love here by bringing up your question. We did already answer this one, though, when we talk about inequality. So, yeah, Isaac, also, thanks. I, I also say what we have today is not capitalism. I mean, what we have today is crony capitalism, people abusing their relationships to people in power to abuse others. So I, I completely agree that the inequality is unsustainable, is corrupt, is evil. I am by no means ever trying to defend the existing system. I absolutely think, I agree, we need something new. So I, I, I'm a philosophical capitalist. I am not speaking about the current system we have now. Uh, Fred, a couple more. Uh, from Frank Coates, very good friend of ours, uh, from a company called Investnet, their mission is to make uh, financial uh, wealth, health for not just the the very rich, but for in fact for just the the uh, the everybody make that a possibility, make financial freedom a possibility for for everyone. Uh, Frank writes, I think you have to show your vulnerability and admit you are afraid for yourself, your family, and your team. Makes leaders more real and connected. Totally, totally. I mean, fear is the other side of love. You're only afraid when you love. If you don't love and you don't care about something, you're not afraid of losing it. And fear is the impetus to protect it. So, you know, it can be financial. So financial protection for, the, for yourself and the people you love and even the causes you care. Um, you know, some people have donated money to foundations I've started, and they also are you know, afraid that the current system is unsustainable and we need to do something. And some very wealthy people can love at, at large scale. So I, I, I consider a badge of honor to be afraid and to be sad, because if you don't love, you, you, you're not vulnerable. So the tough guys, it's what you were telling your son. I mean, tough guys, macho, nothing touches me. It's, you're empty. You're, you're depressed. You have no life. Uh, yeah. But if you open up to life, then you will be afraid and you ought to be afraid and showing that and acknowledging that and then charging anyway. I mean, this is your, your motto, attack. Attack doesn't mean I don't care. Attack means I'll do it with fear. It's not yeah. because I'm not afraid. I, I mean, being brave requires that you be afraid and you do it anyway. If you're not afraid, this is not bravery. This is just, well, whatever, stupidity. craziness, stupidity. Yeah. Or, or carelessness, like, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of, uh, I don't know, being in cold water. So getting in cold water is, is not a big deal. Now, I'm afraid of sharks. So getting in the water with sharks, now it's a little more challenging because I care about my limbs, so to speak, and my life. But, that, but, but I, I'll, get, I'll do it anyway. And it's exhilarating, but it's scary as hell. Yeah. Uh, for the for the uh, Fred had mentioned earlier so everybody can see Akira the Don thank you Miguel for bringing it up and and uh, and my teammate Omri talked about a little Spotify here for you as well uh, 
uh, Fred, two more questions. Your thoughts on this. Should governments be providing stimulus checks now in response to COVID-19 or just let people fend for themselves? If so, when are where are the boundaries and borders between when it is and when it's not appropriate to provide this kind of gesture? What some identify um, as a matter of justice and equality for those in need? Uh, yes, this, this is a very, very profound question and a, and a very, I would say, I mean, I, I really mean this, this is a super intelligent question because we are at a situation where we have to deal with what exists today and what exists today includes the inertia and the system that exists today. So I, I, I've been speaking very philosophically because it's easier. Real life, it's a lot harder. So right now we're, we're in a situation where, I mean, there's a law, for example, that prevents people from taking care of themselves. And you know, there's a lockdown. So now what do you do? You let people, should government provide stimulus checks uh, I, I think so, yes. I, now, now my answer would be yes, but it's a conditional yes based on the fact it would be like a takings clause. Uh, should the government give you money if they take away your property? Well, of course. I mean, that, they, they already took it by force. They need to pay you for that. They're like They can't expropriate you. I mean, that's the typical tyrannical thing in a lot of regimes, like communist regimes. I'll expropriate I won't give you anything. Well, now the government is expropriating your right to work. It's saying you have to stay locked down. I, I, I'm not even opening judgment. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? That, that's a separate question. But the fact is there are laws that will shut down your business and will kill your job. Should the government pay for that? Well, first, it's not the government paying. Should the government either tax people, get in debt, or print money? Because those are the only, way, the only ways the government doesn't give you anything that, that the, the government doesn't produce. The government either gets from people through taxes, gets from people through bonds or debt, or prints, or spirits out of nothing, because now it's no, you, you just have di digits. You, you don't even have paper money. But those are the only three ways you can finance. So should the government create money or indebt itself or uh, create an obligation for people to pay taxes in the future and so on? My answer today would be yes. I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed to have to say yes, but yeah, given, right. the, given the alternatives, yeah. I, I, I think it's the, <laughs> it's the only just thing to do at this point. But that's asking, like, should you cut off your leg when you have gangrene? The answer is, well, what did you do the last five years to deal with your diabetes that now you have gangrene? Now, yeah, I would, I would, cut, I would cut my leg off, but I would say, let's go back and learn what have we done to get to the point where we ate so much sugar that we got diabetes, and then we didn't take care of the diabetes. Now we have, then we had gangrene, and now we have to cut off our leg. That's a bad thing, but it's the best of the alternatives right now. But let's go back to training and see what lesson do we learn so we can avoid this the next time around or in the future. That, that's what I would say. Fred, I'd like, uh, I would love, and we, could, and we could actually add, we've got another person in mind that I'd love to add, add to this conversation. But I'd love to do another conversation just about the coronavirus, COVID-19, our the government's response to it, the complete lack of leadership I feel like we've had at all levels of government. Yes, starting with our president, but, but also many of our health experts needing to take a um, take responsibility for their lack of leadership. 
as well as the media, and then also the lack of leadership we've shown inside of our own families. I think we've had a complete dis, um, as, an, as a nation, I, I can't speak for you know Mexico, I'll speak for what I feel, I'm not speaking for Americans, I'm speaking for myself, but what I see in America is a complete lack of leadership at every single level of society, a complete lack of personal accountability, in homes throughout our country. Does that mean everyone? No, not at all, but I think many. Um, I'd love to have a deeper conversation with you and hear your thoughts about it, Fred, because it is something that that is just infuriating to me as, as an American and, and an American that I think has a warrior spirit. Um, the thing I would highlight to, to John's question is, you know, should governments uh, be providing people stimulus checks? The thing, Fred, as I would highlight is, and this is where we have to remember is that that's our money. That that that's not the government. <laughs> it's it's our money, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and and to your point, a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, once you kill my business, you, and that's not the coronavirus that killed my business. Our government leaders killed our business. The health experts who cannot admit that we have new information and that this information should change what we thought should be the answer eight weeks ago, who are do not have the confidence or the courage to say, I made a mistake that, well, yes, once you kill our business, once you put one in five Americans out of work, then yes, you, you should pay for that. But first and foremost, we, as leaders, we can't say that our decisions are saving, and I quote, countless lives. But it's the pandemic which has caused 30 million people in six weeks to lose their jobs. It's not. Take responsibility. Take accountability. Your decisions have put 30 million people out of work. Yes, you should pay those people appropriately for, do, for you doing that. And for, quite frankly, many Americans just rolling over and accepting it. Um, Fred, let me let me end with this question uh, from Cody Lee. And by the way, Cody, I appreciate the shout out, as I'm sure Fred does. Um, I don't know if I ever wrote a book with the intention of making you sob, but if it created a, a visceral response, um, I hope it made an impact, but thank you, Cody. Cody writes, basically, how do you suggest contributing to this movement, to, to a more conscious future when the system seems to want it to stay the same? Absolutely. Um, well, thank you, Cody. I, it, it's very touching what you said. And I'm moved because that desire to make things better is the... Oh, it's, 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 it's what you're looking for. I mean, Rumi, who's a Persian poet, a mystical poet, said, the longing is the host. And what he meant is the longing for God is the presence of God in your heart. So the longing to see this be better is the impulse, is, is, the, is the vision, is the purpose that can animate your life to work towards it. And if you think, how am I going to change the system? It looks 
impossible. I mean, I, I, I don't even know what to do. I'm, I'm struggling with that. And I feel a, a bigger responsibility. Being a little fish, in a sense, it's easier because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a medium fish, I would say. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm completely clueless and I'm lost, but now I feel much more responsible. If I'm a little fish, then like I'm learning, but now I have 60 years, I've learned a, a lot and now I have to pay back. I have to do something with what I learned and I don't know what to do either. But this impulse, this this longing to see love flourish in the world, the, the the desire for justice and truth, just connect with that and say, I I'm going to educate myself. This if you're a little fish, I say train yourself. This this is the time to to grow. This is the time to prepare yourself to study. It's not about going out and doing things because. Uh, again, to quote Frederic Bastiat, this economist I mentioned about the law, he said the difference between a good economist and a bad economist is that the bad economist sees what is seen. And the good economist sees what is not seen. And there's a lot to understand behind of what seems uh, in the surface and understanding and learning and, 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 and working. Like business is not about greed. Understanding that business is about love and kindness. And then enacting that and starting your business or looking for a workplace like that. So that, that would be my, my first step to, to educate, to read. The Road to Serfdom is a very good way to start. I mean, it's a little intense as a book. It's, it's old, but, but the, the way it describes how society can go awry, it's a perfect way to start learning the lessons about how do I do good? I need, before I, I, I become a doctor, I need to study anatomy. And I think too many people want to be social doctors and they haven't studied anatomy. So I go back and say, Hey, let's let's study and let that longing guide you uh, in your studies. Fred, Fred, I'm sorry, I missed one. I want to highlight it. I've got a couple of thoughts because it's from our friend Ernesto. Ernesto, first of all, I miss you. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon and giving you a hug real soon. But uh, Fred, Ernesto, that's a great question. And I think it's very timely in closing. What are our thoughts on leading teams working online? during this crisis or normally. I mean, a lot of people are gonna be working online even at the end of this. Uh, let me ask, any thoughts about differences in leadership if people are online or in an office? I mean, I'm talking to you the same. I mean, I don't know, I don't see any difference. The, the screen doesn't exist because we know one another, because we have a deep connection. It's irrelevant. You, we could be having coffee across the table it wouldn't be any more intimate. I don't know how many people are there, two people, a thousand people, it doesn't matter, I'm talking to you. So 100% of our attention is placed here. We're not thinking about our likes, we're not thinking about how many audience or where does this go, we're here in the present moment. And I think leadership is exactly that. So it becomes even more important because now when you're in virtual contact, the social distance has to create emotional closeness. You, you can't get away. When you're physically together, I mean, there's a saying that many people move to Israel so they don't have to be Jewish anymore. Because once you're in Israel, you don't have to be Jewish. Like, it's obvious they're Jewish. Like, I'm, I'm Jewish. So it's like, oh, I go to Israel. I'm Israeli. I'm a, I don't have to worry about my Jewish faith or tradition. Right. Now, when right. you live in Argentina, it's a little harder to be Jewish. So now you, you have to be a little more conscious about that. Well, when you're all together, it's like, hey, we're together. And the truth is you're not together. You're all watching your own phones and you're, you're completely disconnected. You're just physic in physical proximity. So in a way, I think the physical distance or social distance 
creates the need for emotional proximity and attention proximity and focus that magnify the same qualities of leadership that make a difference when the team is together. But now it, it's, it's 10 times more important because there's no place to hide. You can't cover up your lack of emotional engagement with the appearance of, of social cohesion. People are not together. So if you have it, then your team, it doesn't make any difference. Honestly, it, it, it doesn't have to make any difference because what matters is our mind. And our minds are connected regardless of physical space. Like my mind and Hayek's mind are connected. I mean, the, the guy is dead, but I, I can read his book and I can cry or we can listen to a piece of music. And so if, if you can create this spiritual bond, the, as to say that being real teammates, uh, we, I go to battle with teammates, as you say, and people that share purpose and share principles, whether we are together in this time, in person, I mean, in the Little Prince, there's a beautiful line that says, things as trivial as time and space cannot really separate us. And, and I feel like that. Fred, what I've highlighted to people is that, especially at this point, if one more person tells me to socially distance, I'm going to punch that son of a right in the face because depending on which side of the fence you may who you what health expert you might believe or might not maybe you may feel that we should physically distance from each other in any case we should not be socially distancing from each other in Mm -hmm. fact as we're trying to teach everybody whether it's on the athletic battlefield the military or the the uh, corporate one, what a wonderful opportunity we have right now to socially come closer together. We don't have 10,000 things that we're doing. We're not bringing our kids to soccer games, lacrosse games. This We're not in our cars. We're not in airplanes traveling. This is a wonderful opportunity for us socially to come together. And ultimately, Fred, as you're talking, what, what strikes me, what strikes an accord with me is it's all about relationships. Totally. totally. The lack of relationship it's a lot more dangerous to your health than anything. I mean, smoking, it's, it's, it's 10 times worse. The probability of being alive a year from now is more correlated to the strength of your relationships than any other marker of health, any other. I mean, you, you would be better off with heart disease and friends that totally healthy <laughs> and no friends. I mean, serious. I mean, this is, I this is, this is statistics. I... So how crazy it is that in the middle of this health challenge, we're locking people up. So, like, don't connect. Don't be afraid of everybody. Don't, don't relate to other people. Now, yes, maybe, and it, it's questionable, in open air, how, how physical, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not, I, but what I can tell you for sure, that there is no negative consequence of opening your heart and connecting to other people meaningfully. I mean, in fact, it's the only thing that's going to keep you alive as a human being. You may survive, as a physical body, but if you don't have your heart open, if your soul is not connected to the larger entity that we all participate in as a as humanity, then you're dead already. Like, I mean, you're, you're you're existing, but yeah, rock is existing too. How do you exist as a human being? Well, you need to relate. So social proximity, emotional proximity, physical, maybe now we can't be as close to one another, but like, develop the hunger so when this thing gets released we can go hug everybody and say it's 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 great to now let our bodies catch up with our souls but soulfully 
it's the same type of leadership that ever was. Now we have the opportunity to do it virtually. And I think one of the things specifically, Fred, that we are challenging all leaders on and all teammates on, which mean everybody on, it's something that I have to remind myself every single day. You talk about Marcus Aurelius looking at something that says, you know, be happy, right? Every day he's like, be the thing that that is in, in my daily mantra is, and something that we are teaching everybody is we develop relationships by effectively communicating with each other. We don't say by talking to, to each other, we say effectively communicating with each other. Effective communication is how we talk, but how we listen. Of the two skills, the listening is much more mission critical in developing a relationship. Specifically, as we discuss, Fred, we did in Ernesto, we challenge people to listen to understand, not to respond. Listen to understand, not to respond. Very challenging because at our as our friends at Chapman and Company um, highlighted to us on an earlier call, we can, on average, we talk 150 words a minute. We can process, on average, 450 words a minute which means that when somebody else is talking at us, we have an incredible amount of capacity in the head being used. So we fill that capacity with thinking about, oh, hey, I wonder what's on my phone. And uh, yeah, okay, yeah, all, all right. We, we think about, we multitask. We think about what our response to this person who's talking at us is. Instead, listen to understand. That yes, we have to do that virtually right now, but we should be doing that regardless. And if we can do that, it will help facilitate deeper relationships and ultimately how good a teammates and how good a team leaders we are for each other is in direct proportion, direct relation to how deep a relationship we have with each other. Yes. Uh, finally, Fred, just because I always, after listening to you, um, and on this, our listeners are no longer going to be listening to Coffee with Cap. They're just going to be uh, clamoring for the Fred Kaufman hour. Uh, I just want to let you know that at least my father-in-law is still uh, my father-in-law is still on my side. So I appreciate the shout out from my father-in-law. Uh, Fred, I want to do this again with you. Our audience wants to hear more from you. That was uh, I'm a better human being, Fred at 11.50 in the morning uh, than I was at, at, at 10 a.m. when we started. Fred, I feel that way during every single interaction that I have with you. I know that all of your clients, many of whom you've, I've been very, the program has been very privileged that you've given us access to and, and helped you work with them. Uh, I know they feel the same way that every interaction with you, they end up as better, not just leaders and teammates, but as better people. I know our audience feels that way. I definitely feel that way. Fred, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, and let's do this again real soon. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you. Thank you, Fred.